Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Cinemantics, the podcast about movies good and bad, mostly bad. I'm your host, Nick Melton, and my co-host this evening... G. Warlock Vance. I'd like to take a, a quick moment before we start to sort of tell you where I've been for the last four months. Uh, as you know, the most frequent co-host of this show is Jeff Heatherly, and he... Uh, Uh, He has graduated from school, gone on to bigger and better things, but he's in his hometown, which is several hours away from where I am, and we haven't really had the uh, financial means or just, like, the opportunity to see each other very often, and we decided rather than do long-distance podcasting, which is a pain to edit, that we would just sort of wait and see what happens, and the months have just gone on. But fear not, we're, we're still here, and, uh... We are kicking off our our return to the podcast airwaves with a really kind of strange, wacky movie. I'd been aware of it for a long time. I even bought the DVD. Going to have a big watching party, you know. Uh, I'd been really excited about it. Um, finally got a chance to watch it with uh, with my good friend Warlock here. Uh, it's from 1977, directed by Nobuhiko Okiyashi, uh, and it's called House. There's really no other way to say it, I think. They do it like that in the trailer, and they even do it in the movie. When the title comes on screen, this ominous voice goes, Oh, this... I was, I was absolutely flabbergasted by this movie. Uh, yeah, uh, I showed Warlock the trailer, and I was like, Doesn't this look insane, and we have to watch it? And he's like, Yes, we, we have to. Uh, I gotta say, this is one of the strangest movies I've ever seen. Well, you know, what, what amazes me is that I had never heard of this film. I've heard of... The House, that was made with uh, William Katz, Richard Mall back in probably about 1980. But everybody talks about how J-horror begins with movies like Ringu and um, Ju-ong, but this is it. This is, uh, this is the beginning of J-horror, and 30 years before uh, anybody ever, ever thought to call it that. Um, yeah, uh, that's actually why I wanted to do it with you, because I knew you were a J-horror fan. I've actually not seen many of the original J-horror movies, but I know they've got a very distinct vibe to them. And I wanted to get your opinion on... I mean, this movie is ostensibly a horror movie, but it's not scary. And it's just so wacky and playful that I was wondering how you fit, how you think it fits within like the J-horror tradition. Well, I think that there's this kind of suspense that's going on in this film, and that's that's kind of what I think J-Horror is hearkening back to, if it's if it's using House as a springboard at all, and it really, really seems to be. You know, there's a lot of comedic elements and uh, just kind of these uh, nutty touches of, of camera tricks and things in House that um, that you don't see in things like Ringu. But but then, of course, there is that, that humorous beginning to Ringu when the, uh, the little girls are uh, talking about the, the incident and how the phone rings, and then the phone does ring, and it ends up being the, the girl's mother. So uh, it's, it's not the ghost calling them to predict their death. So you have this, that there's a little touches like that, but I mean, uh, those build suspense. And in House, you don't have a building of suspense with the, uh, with the humor touches. You just, you know, those are just kind of like little crazy asides. Next up. Next up, um, well, let's see, what is this movie about? Well, the movie is, uh, it's actually kind of weird, because as strange as this movie is, the plot is really easily explained. It's this group of schoolgirls who have this big plan during their summer break to go and visit this 
inn on the seaside or something or whatever, but the inn is closed for the summer, so instead one of the girls says, hey, come to my aunt's house and we'll hang out and have a good time during the summer. And they go to the house, and the house is haunted, and they all meet very unusual demises. And there's, of course, a reason, which I will not give away immediately. Some very inventive manners of death, though, I will say. But even from the beginning, before the strange stuff starts happening at the house, there is so much weirdness going on just in their average everyday lives. And it's not so much the way they behave, but it's the way the film is shot and the way it's edited. Like, there are so many uses of, like, irises zooming in on things. Weird spinning shots. Really bizarre music. And, like, they're, they go on the train to the house for the summer. All of a sudden, we're in a 70s animated movie, like Pink, Sub Pink Submarine. Yellow Submarine. It, it's just so bizarre. Uh, I don't know that you were commenting early on in the film before the, the wackiness really started about how well shot you thought the film was. Yeah, there's all these these odd panel shots where um, somebody moves in from from one area of the film into another, and then there's a, a lot of split screen. There's um, really really effective wipes. It, it seems like every camera trick that was ever invented up up to 1977 has been um, thrown into this film. That's actually one of the reasons I really liked it was because even beyond just ignoring everything about the film. It's clearly just a guy who's enamored with movies having fun making a movie. Like He's like, if I want to use animation in this scene, I will. If I want to move the camera like this, I will. If I want to shoot through the floor, I'll make a glass floor and do it. He's just doing whatever he wants, and I think that's kind of admirable. And, I mean, it, it is a bit stylistically unhinged, but I think that results in a very energetic movie. You know, you were, you were saying earlier, you know, it's like, oh, okay... It's, it's, it's not very far into the film that you feel as if um, the moment has, a, has a, arisen where this is the time where you're supposed to drop acid. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, that's my only regret is that I wasn't tripping when I watched it because it feels just like an acid trip caught on film. All the, all, especially the animation. The animation is just so bizarre. And like they're talking in the train, but they're not, they're not in the train. They're just like sitting on a soundstage or something. And in the background... All this animated, you know, trees and mountains are going by, and you're wondering why, why he made that choice. Well, it's it's also, I mean, you know, it's limited by its technology, 1977. But I mean, in '77, you got to consider, you know, Star Wars comes out, and yeah, this Japanese director probably doesn't have uh, the fancy uh, production quality of that ILM had kind of created um, these uh, interesting computer-operated cameras and things, but he decides to shoot a lot of this against the blue screen. And it, it looks really, really crappy. I mean, the uh, you know, you, you can see like the, uh, what you often see in blue screen, where the edges kind of creep into the, uh, like if leaves are blowing in the tree, then the leaves are just kind of floating because the limbs have been lost mm -hmm. against the blue screen. And you can sort of see like black outlines mm -hmm. around characters. Exactly. So, uh, but it also contributes to that psychedelic effect that the, that the film has. So this film is 1977. You know, we're moving into what is ostensibly the punk generation, you know, the, the, the beginnings of Generation X. But it's hearkening back stylistically to 10 years before this when, you know, you've got all this late 60s kind of just wackadoodle uh, filmmaking where, you know, all these bright colors. And, and uh, there's even a, a one of the scenes I really like is where... The little girl is showing almost like a 
old family, like Super 8 movies or something, and there's a burn in the film where it just kind of goes, and fades out. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a that's a cool scene to include, and, and again, you know, just another stylistic trick that the director has thrown. That's in. a really cool stylistic trick, though. He's she's explaining like the history of her family and who her aunt married and why, and he never came back from the war, blah blah blah. And they filmed it like in the sepia toned, like vaguely jumpy stock footage almost, but you can see like the little edges of the film on the sides of the screen where the little holes would be where you'd put it through the projector. Mm, and and it, uh, it makes it blatantly obvious that you're watching a movie, although this movie makes it blatantly obvious you're watching a movie all the time. One more one more stylistic trick that I think is really cool is the, um, the use of kind of intertextuality in the film. A lot of the scenes are shot against these, um, these background paintings of sunsets and these beautiful skies, lovely clouds and things, and it's, it's so kind of hokey and yet, at the same time, it's so hauntingly beautiful that you just look at it, you laugh, and then you get absorbed into the scene. But what's cool is, like, they get off the bus, and you see all these clouds and mountains in the background, and then the bus pulls away, and you see that, that the camera pans back a little bit, and it's just like a, a, a piece of wood or, or some kind of a backdrop, a sign that has the painting on it, and behind them is yet another painting of mountains and clouds and things like this in, in the That is supposed to be the actual that. backdrop. Like, right. they put a painting of the painted backdrop into the movie. Right. I think exactly. that's kind of brilliant in its in its weird way. But for all the wackiness we've been talking about for like ten and a half minutes, I mean, what really struck me, though, while watching it, and you pointed this out, too, at some point, was even though all this weird crap happens in it, the pacing is still rather deliberate. Mm-hmm. Like, the trailer makes it look like it's just an endless stream of strange, unexplainable activity with strange psychedelic effects and blah, blah, blah. And there is a lot of it, but he does space these incidents apart very like like any other horror movie would. They don't give it to you all at once. They, they save their bits and then just have some general weirdness in between. Sure, the, um, the you know the the trailer. I mean, when you when you sent the trailer to me and I watched that on YouTube, I thought, holy crap, this is um, this is like uh, John Woo on acid or something. And I'm expecting that, and I keep waiting for the movie to pick up pace, and it never does. And, I, and yet, at the same time, I wasn't disappointed. Right. So um, I like this kind of uh, even keel. You told me that what, what's the running time of the film? It's uh, only 88 minutes. Yeah, and surprisingly, I found myself. You know, at first I was concerned. I was thinking, wow, it's kind of, uh, it's got this even pace to it. They better pick up the pace or that 88 minutes is going to just, you know, zoom by. But by the end of the film, it, it still kept that same pace and uh, its resolution is uh, is interesting. And I was surprised that all of that fit into the 88 minutes. Especially when, when you think of all the brilliant ways that the house eats every single character. And it does eat them all, which is yeah. interesting. That's sort of that sort of thing uh, that I wanted to talk about. The basic plot is the aunt is a witch. Oop! I should probably just drop the spoiler bomb now. If you haven't seen this movie and are interested, go see it before you listen to the rest of this because this movie is not a widely seen movie, so I don't expect listeners to have seen it. But um, the aunt is a witch, and she's been dead like this whole time. But somehow her spirit is alive in the house, and the house eats unmarried girls because. She spent her whole life waiting for her love to return home from the war. So she's sort of like taking, the house sort of like taking that out on, on everyone who's not married, etc. But anyway, so they do get eaten. Like, 
the first big, I think, kill scene is off-screen, which I think is really unusual given everything that follows. Uh, they have this giant watermelon that they're trying to keep cool, but the refrigerator doesn't work, so they lower it into the well, and when she goes to... The girl goes to get the, the watermelon out of the well, and she doesn't come back right away. Standard horror movie trope. So they're like, oh, maybe you should go check and uh, go find her. So they go out to the well, and they pull up the watermelon, and instead it's the girl's head. We don't know what really happened to her. Maybe the well ate her. I don't know. Uh, but then the head flies around and like literally tries to eat one of the main characters, and it's really kind of wacky. Uh, there's, there's a lot of um, traditional Japanese... Uh ghost story elements in, in this film. If uh, you've ever read uh, the stories of um, Lafcadio Hearn, he was a um, actually a Dutch author who had gone to Japan and, and just fell in love with the culture and the legends. And it's interesting because even though he's technically a gaijin, a foreigner, the Japanese claim him mm-hmm. as one of their writers. Um, but his, his um, collection of ghost stories is called Kaidan, and you see it looks like Whenever you see it written out, it looks like Kwai Dan. It's, uh, Didn't they make a movie of that? Sure. And uh, one of the best episodes of that was called Hochi the Earless, which is that's my favorite, favorite of all the Kaidan. But it's uh, K-W-A-I-D-A-N, but that's pronounced Kaidan. And uh, a lot of the, the traditional ghost story elements are um, hair. There's like this kind of um, fear of, of hair that's been cut off of the body. There's ghosts that are just hair that flies around. There's a scene of, of a girl in the bath and hair kind of like creeps up out of the water and gets onto her back and she turns around and it, it recedes and the, the girl's head flying around she has long long uh, does she have long no she has a short haircut but um, anyway her her head's flying around and you see the hair and this kind of thing too so would that be why like in the ring there's a big sheet of hair covering the front of her face sure yeah, I, I actually so. didn't know that that was a, a thing yeah that's one of the uh, one of the fears and I, I guess um, different cultures have have different kinds of, uh, you know, stereotypical uh, likes, dislikes. And one of the Japanese is that hairy people are considered barbarians. So they look at most Americans who have hair on their arms or, you know, hair on their chest or something, and, and they kind of eschew those people. Whereas, um, and, and, you know, like the Egyptians did the same thing. The Egyptians actually shaved their their bodies, and you see all of these um, statues with the, the long beard things. They actually fashioned those out of hair, but then they glued them to themselves and wore them. They didn't actually wear beards. They, they shaved most of the hair off of their body. Hmm. And I don't know about the Japanese, if they, they bother to uh, use depilatory products, but um, I know that uh, the hair is one of the things that they, they fear as, as a ghost story. And that little shot with the hair is actually pretty creepy. I mean, the, this movie is not scary, but there are several moments in the movie that do kind of frighten me, at least on a, like, on a more, like, when I think about it later, like, the concept of what is happening. Oh my god, that's actually quite creepy. In the movie, they don't always come off as as creepy when they're happening. Like, a girl being eaten by a lampshade isn't necessarily that creepy, but the way they accomplish it in the movie is kind of unnerving. The girl gets eaten by the piano, which is, I think, one of the most memorable scenes in the whole movie. That is actually rather creepily achieved when you stop and think about it. Although at the time when you're watching it, you're just sitting there with your jaw gaping open like, holy crap, what is this I'm seeing? Well, and there's the the fact that she is made to play the piano. She's kind of possessed into playing it. And you hear the joke in a sense of, gosh, that guy 
you know, he's, he's playing his, his fingers off or something like this because mm -hmm. he's playing so fast or he's playing the guitar so quickly or something like this. And she literally grinds her fingers off. The, the piano keys kind of eat them or break them off or something. And then the one scene that you said was actually really creepy was with the, the, severed, fingers, the yeah. severed fingers are playing the, the notes individually of, of the creepy song. Yeah, that, that song, um, do you think there was a reason for that song? There's like one piece of music that they play over and over and over and over again, like in every scene of the movie, with a couple of exceptions. But I was wondering if you'd noticed that and had any ideas about why they made that choice. I was thinking that as I was watching that, I, I didn't have an idea, but now thinking back about it, that may have been like some sort of traditional wedding song. Mm -hmm. um, or it's, you know, just something maybe they made up for the film. But I think it's supposed to be the song that was played during the, the sister's wedding. Um, I guess we should tell a little bit more about the plot. The um, the main character who invites the other girls to her, her aunt's um, haunted house is a girl named Gorgeous. Everybody's named after... Like their primary character trait. Like, Gorgeous is gorgeous. Melody is musically or is musically inclined. Mac is, like, eats all the time. I'm guessing that's a McDonald's reference. Sweet is really, you know... Innocent. Innocent and, uh, you know, et cetera. Kung Fu, which is our favorite character. Yeah, she knows martial she knows, arts. She knows martial arts. It's that and then kind the of professor thing. who wears glasses and is very smart and logical and thinks, yeah. thinks everything should have a scientific explanation. And I think there's only one other character named yeah, Fantasy, Fantasy yeah. who's always daydreaming about uh, this, this goofy doofus of a guy, but she thinks he's handsome. And uh, Yeah, she's... like the, they follow the goofy guy throughout the movie in this random subplot, and uh, it never really goes anywhere, so I'm kind of curious as to why they went with it, maybe to pad out some running time. But to me, it always feels a little jarring when you've established one location and one set of characters to be, to be jumping out of that mm -hmm. location. always feels a little weird to me. Like we were talking about that movie, Hard Candy, earlier today. Yeah. And we both agreed that that scene with Sandra Oh, as good an actress as she is, totally throws off the rest of the movie because it had established its own rhythm. I think some films are kind of afraid to to kind of stick with stick with something and see how it plays out. Although I would hardly say that this is a fearless, uh, a fearful movie. No, I mean no, the guy was fearless at right. anything. And the you know there's I mean I mentioned John Woo earlier, and that that's a kind of uh, exaggerated and stylized violence and, and those sort of um, Kung Fu or, or mob action films that he mm -hmm. made, but the uh, the stylized violence in in House is so incredibly over the top that it's you can see that this is really the precursor of, of movies like Machine Girl and what was the other one by the uh, Robo Geisha, Robo Geisha, yeah, which is also incredibly weird. The Japanese have a have a flair for the weird, I've discovered. But anyway, I was going on about creepy moments. Apart from the piano, I find that shot with the hair climbing over back pretty creepy. That shot where, that little bit where all the doors and windows suddenly close incredibly creepy, and the camera zooms outside of the house, like way far away, so you can watch all the lights shut off one by one as the shutters close, I thought was actually a really effective creepy moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that the aunt is rather creepy. There's this, there's this shot where she goes into the refrigerator and they're like, oh no, she went into the refrigerator and they're opening it. And they're like, it's just a refrigerator. And then suddenly she pops into frame right in front of the camera, which is up like on a balcony overlooking the whole thing. And then she like turns and like winks slyly at the camera. And it's actually, she's, yeah, she's actually she's really creepy. Rafters, yeah. Like, There's that bit where they're eating dinner and she opens her mouth and there's just like an eye oh, in yeah, her I mouth. Mention that. 
And that's that was also unexpected and kind of creepy and off putting. It's cool that the eye moves in conjunction with her eyes. Yeah. So whenever she moves her eyes to the right, the, the eye in her mouth moves to the right, and you you get the idea that I I kind of got the idea that that was the first girl who had died. That's her eye. Oh, that's and, cool. And she's you know she's eating eating that girl. This is you know because we see her actually literally eating that some of the body parts of one, yeah, one or the it. other of these. In a little montage overscored with cheerful music. They, they really like the ironic interplay between funny, happy music and these terrifying events. And this is another thing that takes this movie back to, like, you know, the 60s to me, is that the music is, is stuff that you would hear, like, in a, like, some sort of a love, love ballad, or it's a kind of sing-songy, I don't know, there's nothing surf about this, so I, I was making the jokes about if this movie had been made today... Um, there would have been more like upskirt shots. The girls would have all been running around in their underwear and their bras. They're, the kung fu girl does actually um, jump around in her like kind of a bikini bottom or something and, and a, a small top like that. But um, the rest of the girls are, are dressed most of the time, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, the, the music is just so nutty. It does. It, it's so incongruent with the with what's going on on, on screen. Um, I've got a. a... A suggestion, which is, uh, or an idea, and the idea for the movie was actually conceived by the director's daughter, who was like seven at the time, and I'm curious if you agree that the reason the movie is so cartoonish, rather than, I mean, clearly, watching it, the dude is a competent director, all those interesting camera moves, all, like, the movie is very well made, apart from the cheapness of the special effects, etc. He could have made a really straightforward interesting haunted house movie i was wondering if you would agree with me that the reason it's so cartoonish and out there and wacky is because he was making it for his daughter who may have been too young to appreciate or watch a really genuinely frightening movie well there that's a good idea i didn't i didn't really uh, realize that there was that kind of input into the film um, you know far more about the history of it than i do yeah i guess you know you could say that there's there is that kind of cartoon uh, element about it but you could really get into the psychology of the people. I mean, the Japanese people, by analyzing just this one film. And this is one of the things I like about J-horror. J-horror becomes very existential. There is no hope. We are on the planet. We put up with banality. And yet, in all of this uh, everyday rat race kind of thing, the bizarre does happen from time to time. And it's going to happen, and we don't have any control over it. And you're going to live... And one day you're going to die, and that's it. There's the existentialism of, of all of these kind of J-horror films. It's just that when the bizarre happens, it's so freaking bizarre that you can't uh, you can't escape it, and there's no hope for these characters. It happens in Ring, Ring 2, Ring 0, Birthday, which is actually kind of a crap movie. Um, <laughs> but then other movies like Cairo, which was brought over here as Pulse, and then I think it was remade. There's an American version of Pulse, which I haven't seen. Ju-ong, which became The Grudge. All of these movies just have that kind of bleak quality to them. Dark Water, um, Maravita, which is really, really grim. We'll, we'll have to have to watch we're, that We're going sometime, to yeah. promise you. I, I'm going to I'm going to step in and go out on a limb and say we can promise the listeners a uh, uh, a good uh, broadcast about Maravito and other Lovecraftian things. Yes. But you were saying even in this movie, I mean, how do you think that that existentialism manifests here? Well, I, that's that's what I was going to say. That I think that the um, 
there is an existential quality about this one, but since it does take that kind of cartoony feel, there's a lighter, lighter aspect to that. There's the existentialism just becomes more an inevitable. We know that the house is, is going to eat all of these people, and that the resolution is going to be what? It's going to be that, that the process is just going to continue. It's a cycle, and as grim as this prospect sounds, the um, the last words of, of the movie are like a little poem about love and how strong love is and how love can't be conquered and um, so ultimately the movie then has to you know you have to just step back and say okay this is a movie about love and the power of one person's love for another and how that that love can you know even translate as a power from the grave and obviously the, if, the, if that's the message of the movie, it, man, it, it chose some rather sinister ways to... Well, sure, because the aunt, the one that you said is kind of like a witch, um, the essence of that love is so powerful, she, she promises that she will never... Stop waiting for him. Right, stop waiting for him. So, she, uh, to, in, honor, in, in order to honor that promise, she has to come back from the grave to do it. And, you know, coming back from the grave obviously drives her mad, and then she's eating other people to have the energy to continue her own quest. And I think I think it's kind of interesting. The movie sort of implies a uh, that people are aware of what's happening at the house because there's that watermelon vendor who is only in like two scenes, but he knows what's going on up there. People are aware of it. I'm wondering if he's actually like complicit with her, like if he sends young girls up her way to keep her alive or whatever. Because clearly no one's tried to stop her. I People about just that sort too. of know until yeah. the end, though, when when he kind of just falls down as a you know this little cartoony pile of, of bones. Um, we see his body then transformed into bones, which just kind of fall apart and they're you know lying there on the ground for a second or something. Um, makes me wonder if maybe he was just kind of the demonic helper from hell or something. I don't know, maybe. So yeah, it's uh, it's uh, there's there's a lot of uh, you can obviously tell there's a lot of cultural things going on here that we obviously don't understand. Right. I mean, there's that bit with the um, Mr. Togo, the bumbling boyfriend that they're always fantasizing about. His storyline resolves rather abruptly when he gets turned into a giant <laughs> pile of bananas. Yeah, he... And I was wondering if you thought that, that had any significance, that they would follow this character the whole movie and then just sort of end it weirdly like that, abruptly. Well, there you go. Or if it's just another incident of strangeness. Yeah, I think it was just this abstract quality about some of the... You know, various elements of this film, but he's babbling about bananas because he sees the uh, the toad-like watermelon vendor turn into a skeleton. Yes, and it kind of drives him crazy, and he's just going bananas, bananas, bananas over and over and over. And then when um, here's another element we didn't we didn't say that one of the reasons why the girl wants to go to her aunt's house is to kind of escape from the situation at home. Her father, who is a uh, famous soundtrack composer. As Leone said that his music was better than Morricone's. Yeah, we were uh, questioning that. Huh? <laughs> we were. Um, when he comes back from uh, a shoot in Italy, he brings back a new wife. Uh, and um, this, this woman's going to obviously be her new mom. And she resents it because, you know, her mom's been dead like eight years, but she still uh, hasn't given up on the idea that her and her dad will just be each other's companions in a sense. I mean, not in the sexual sense of like we would have something going on today, but. This, they're going to take care of one another. And um, when this new woman comes in, she flees the scene and, and goes off to the aunt's house. Interesting, then that woman at the end goes to the aunt's house to try and make up with her. 
And? And her fate is left hanging, sort of. Or she bursts into flames. That actually reminds me of, um, I really like that bit where Gorgeous is sitting in front of the mirror, and she starts seeing things in the mirror, and bits of her face start falling off. Like, they crack like glass and fall off, and behind it there's just, like, this wall of flame. And then, like, her whole body just, like, becomes flames. It's actually a rather nifty effect, and one, one of the few interesting parts of the movie that didn't make the trailer. So I really didn't see that little bit coming, and I mm-hmm. thought that was just another really neat little little scene. It is, and it's it's kind of... Uh, Do the Japanese have anything about mirrors? Well, I don't... Yeah, I mean, a mirror is, um, like, uh, mirrors in houses are uh, really bad feng shui, often, depending on how they're, how they're faced. Um, you never want a mirror facing a doorway. You don't want a mirror facing a bed or any, any place that you will be resting or sitting for a long time because they believe that the mirror is a doorway to the spirit world. And so like when somebody dies, they cover up the mirror or they'll turn the mirror to the wall, this kind of thing. Uh, but you, yeah, you don't see a lot of mirrors in Japanese houses. I mean, maybe today you do, but you know, you never did in the past um, because of that. And, and all Asian houses, really, that's, that's part of Chinese culture as well. But the, um, the other thing is, the Japanese concept of like heaven and hell is very different than ours. This, this goes, to, goes back to more of like a Shinto belief, where hell is just the... It's, it's not necessarily a place for bad people, it's just a place where kind of everybody goes when you die. It's, there's, there's not like a, a negative connotation to this, and, and we would, we, we're translating that as hell. It's just the underworld for them. And... Um, you may see, like, uh, during, like, a, an Asian funeral sometimes, they'll throw um, what looks like money into the air, or they'll leave it on the, um, leave it on the coffin of the person, or, or, and then what's done is, is they burn that, and they call that hell money. And what happens is they'll make a house, they'll make a car, they'll, they'll have big piles of money, and the money is in denominations of, of like, tens of thousands or maybe, like, millions of dollars, each, each bill. And what that's supposed to do is that gives the the dead person, money and transportation and a house, a place to live in the underworld. So hmm. uh, by burning them, it, it tr- like transfers them over into the underworld and gives them something to live on, I guess. <laughs> Is that perhaps why she might have been set on fire there? Well, I think that was just kind of a... I think that's that's a stylistic trick, but I think it's a, it's a means of transference. It's like, okay your physical form is going to be destroyed in this world and you will be transferred over to the next but yeah that's that's an interesting point because if you're going to burn hell money to send it to to the underworld then you burn the person you're sending them over there as well because gorgeous doesn't really get eaten she just is a ghost after that scene Mm -hmm. which is a distinction between her and everybody else in the movie i get the idea that that the um we see the little gleams and there's, there's a, 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 an evil cat. That, I can't believe we haven't mentioned the cat. Wow, the, the cat's cat, important. The cat leads leads Gorgeous actually to the house. It, it comes to her, um, stays with her at her dad's place for a couple of days, makes it onto the train, it, it like keeps appearing and disappearing, and they keep talking about a cat that can open up a door is a ghost. And uh, so obviously this cat does have some sort of ghostly powers, and you see these kind of stylized cartoony looking gleams in the eyes of the cat and in the uh, aunt and at the end of the film we see those gleams in the eyes of gorgeous 
and um, I get the idea that, that the aunt has kind of taken over her younger body. That's what that's the impression I got too. And is using the, the power or whatever so that she can stay in this world. Because she's in the aunt's in a wheelchair and she's she's white headed. With Yoko Ono glasses. Yeah, she's she's just wicked cool looking and, and sexy, you know. <laughs> being this older Japanese woman with blonde like like platinum blonde hair. But after she eats Mac um, who's also a, a rather chunky? She's she's the only only one of the group that's kind of chunky. That's why her key trait is food. That's right. And uh, and the giant. Uh, it's interesting that the giant watermelon is uh, a similar shape to her head. So <laughs> it's a nice play when uh, the when fantasy goes to pull her up out of the well and she pulls up the head, and then the head goes flying around. That's that's another one of these. Uh, stereotypical ghost story elements is like heads that fly around you see those used in Mignola uses them in Hellboy they're used in all sorts of Chinese movies like a Chinese ghost story which is another one we should review here one of these days but um, or one of these evenings depending on when you're listening to us <laughs> but yeah that's this um, once she eats Mac she's able to get up out of the wheelchair and uh, she tells them that they gave me energy. They gave, gave me energy, yeah. Let's talk about the, the deaths of everybody else. Let's talk about the deaths. Yeah, the deaths are like the highlights of the movie. Sweet is the next one to be killed. Uh, I don't remember exactly who all these people are. Oh, right. Sweet gets into a pillow fight. Oh, my and, God. And pillow lose, fight is a... Loses the uh, fight with the mattresses flying at her and, and uh, the pillows. And yeah, she gets attacked around. by mattresses. Lots of them. Feathers fly everywhere, and when they come in to get her, they can't find her. Yeah, they just find so, all of her clothing, and they, they, they're looking around them, thinking that it's odd that she's running around the house naked, so... But then they later find her in the middle, like, like there's this, there's actually a really cool little bit where there's this giant clock bells ringing through the house, and like, oh, that's gotta be a big clock. Where is it? I thought that was really kind of nice, a nice creepy touch. And then later in the movie, they, they find the clock, and Sweet's body is like crammed inside it and the gears are just like turning, cutting her up and blood is just like spilling down the glass front of the clock. And I'm like, oh, there she is. It's interesting, the, uh, the nomenclature that's printed on the front of the clock is in English, which is kind of surprising. It's not in uh, kanji or katakana. It says, house made. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw <laughs> that. That's cool. That's pretty cool, yeah. Uh, and then what happened to Melody? Well, she got cut up by the piano. Gorgeous as a ghost. Kung Fu. How does she meet her end? She uh, the lamp is is flinging oh, the, back. That's and her forth with and the it, lamp. It, yeah, it lands on top of her head, and then she eventually basically swings her around and electrocutes her it's, slash it's, eats her. Yeah, I was gonna say it's electrocuting her at first, and then it eats her, and and um, she uh, is is so violently uh, jumping around trying to free herself that her lower body comes loose, kicks the cat portrait, and... By this point, they've discovered that the cat is, is magical, and they're like, oh, we gotta get rid of the cat. Oddly enough, they don't go after the real cat, they go after a picture of the cat that's on the wall, and she, like, her lower body sort of careens forward and karate kicks the portrait, which just starts spewing what blood. they say is, like, cat's blood into the room, and, like, it just becomes a floating ocean of cat blood in the room, and they're, like, all just swimming around in this pool of... What is obviously water, but they've just lit it to make it look red. And um, then, uh, Fantasy is on one of the um, one of the sliding door panels that uh, has has come loose, and she and uh, she and actually she and Professor are both uh, floating along. And then Professor loses her glasses, reaches out, and is bitten by some kind of a 
I don't know. I like wasn't a, sure what that was. Yeah, it looks like a floating lamp with teeth or something. and uh, Something with teeth that is an inanimate object that should not have teeth. It pulls her under. Her clothes are suddenly gone. And uh, For the first real like nudity in the movie. Yeah, we get to see all of this. That's uh, actually rather strange because like, they linger under the water a long time while she's just sort of floating around down there. And you notice that of all of, you know, I don't know what this movie was rated uh, at, at, at the uh, time it was shot. I mean, least but um you notice that all we see are um, her boobs and her butt you never see any crotch shots in, in these things and there's a reason for that because there was the there were laws in japan and there may still be I, i'm not exactly sure but you were not allowed to show any kind of pubic hair so even japanese pornography as as recent as up up into like the 90s they would have like the uh, the big uh, digitized squares mm -hmm. Blurring these kind of things out in their in their X-rated films. I'm not going to. I'm not at liberty to disclose how I know this information. <laughs> uh, a, a Japanese friend of mine told me about it because he liked buying American pornography and taking it to Japan. But if he, if anybody were caught with it, it would. Uh, It'd be a, if anybody illegal. was caught yeah. with it, then then they would have to pay a fine. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I I actually was aware of that also. Uh, again. Uh, but, uh, let's see. And then gone over. And then fantasy. Um, fantasy is, is tricked. Um, she sees, um, the ghost of, uh, Of Gorgeous. Of Gorgeous, and, and she kind of floats up to a stairway and, um, hesitantly puts forth her hand. We gotta give fantasy at least enough credit to, that even in her kind of dazed and, and mindless state, she questions the veracity of what she's seeing, and then puts out her hand, is embraced by uh, Gorgeous, and she says, Mommy, so we know that her mind is shattered and that she's easy pickings, and we don't see her ever again, so we don't know yeah. how she's eaten or if she's absorbed. Or but I think the movie does make it pretty clear that Gorgeous is in control by the end. She's probably just the reincarnated aunt. Right. Because when her mother, her mother-to-be, I guess, comes to visit... She's in her little geisha outfit, puttering around the house, which is back to normal after all the antics. And she's like, didn't you have, like, seven friends with you here? Where are they? And I'm like, oh, they're asleep, but they'll want to get up soon. They'll be hungry. <laughs> like, that's, like, the only... One of the few, also, kind of frightening bits of this movie. Yeah, that's, well, that's another reason why I think that he made it for his daughter, because it's clear that he had a grip on the creepier aspects of this movie and could have really really taken them to some really disturbing extremes, but chose this strange way instead. So yeah, do you have any anything else you want to say about this movie? Any parting shots? Well, I had, I'd made the uh, comment before that, that I was surprised that it was made the same year as Star Wars, uh, 1977. And obviously there's, there's you know, no accounting or, or ability to compare any movie with that. Um, yeah. That, because that was done in such an amazing fashion. But uh, this movie really, I, I, I wish something like this had come out in 77. I had never been able, allowed to have seen it. I was too young at the time to have gone to see such a movie because it would have probably had a, at least an R rating over here. But I'm really surprised I never heard of it. And uh, I'm really glad that Criterion put this out and got quality prints. Because it, yeah, I've got to give props to uh, Criterion for this. Uh, they, they are nor they're known for doing, you know, the famous films like Fellini and Bergman. And uh, I heard... Uh, somewhere that they were going to start like a line of cult movies and i think they were going to call it something like eclipse but they just didn't do it and they they got the rights to house 
and did some like theatrical showings of it in New York and uh, toured it around the, the country a little bit. It came to North Carolina, but I didn't get a chance to go see it. But anyway, they finally released it on DVD, and I'm really glad they did because it's a really unusual movie, and I can't think of any other way most at least American audiences would get to see it. From what I understand, it did fairly well in Japan at the time of its release. But it's it's just, this is a gorgeous print. The colors are, are vibrant. There's, I don't know, you know, Criterion will, of course, take six different prints or something and cut them up and put them together so that they're, they're getting the best quality. But this is, uh, it's just remarkable. It's so vivid and, and so uh, stunning to look at. Remember the remark I, I made? I said, you could just turn the volume off and, and watch this and, and really enjoy it just for the, uh, the stunning visuals of these panoramic, beautiful uh, uh, back, yeah. background paintings. So whoever did the backdrops did a really good mm-hmm. job. They were so rich and, and, like you said, vibrant. Well, you know, there's a... You've seen, probably seen paintings by like Turner or something that they're all fiery and, and bright. Well, those those uh, Turner paintings have nothing on these backgrounds. I mean, they're they're not I'm comparing apples and oranges in a sense, but I'm just color and vibrancy. You know, this movie has it. Yeah. And the uh, the interior visuals. There's nothing boring about this film. Oh there's, no. There's no uh, no like elements of the of the set design. This sort of thing. There's nice little creepy little cobwebs, but they don't go overboard with it. They don't try and make it look like, oh, it's a haunted house. It just looks like a house that hasn't been used in a while. Yeah. And what I really, well, another thing I really like about it is that they don't really give you a precise layout of the house. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't give you a grand tour at the beginning, like, oh, here's the kitchen and here's blah. So you're never really sure where they are, what what they're doing, like, why are they in this weird little room, like... What is that room with the killer mattresses and, the, and that little weird doll? Mm-hmm. What is that room for, you know? And I, I really like that, that it sort of is disorienting because you never really know where you are. Like, oh, there's the kitchen and there's the piano room, but every place else is just a random little room somewhere that they happen to stumble upon. It gives the impression that the house is this alien entity that they're just sort of wandering through with no real idea of how large or small it could actually be. Well, what's fun, too, is that you mentioned earlier when we were watching this how abstract some of these scenes were. And, and the movie is very abstract, especially since we're, we're disoriented by all of these different rooms and where each, when they run out of a room and they run into a new room, it seems like sometimes they're, they're entering some place that, that they've never been before. That's not true, I guess, but we're given a different camera angle and we're not sure so that the, the, the viewer is kind of disconcerted by all of this different uh, movement and running around back and forth. And yet it still keeps that same pace, which is kind of cool. But um, there's there's elements of this film that feel surrealistic, and yet the, the visuals don't feel surrealistic. I mean, you think of surrealism, you know, and Dolly's melting clocks and watches and this kind of thing, and there's nothing that melts. There's nothing that uh, makes you feel like that it couldn't be real in a sense other than the stylized violence. Right. But, I mean, we accept the stylized violence because it's a haunted house movie. There's, so There's, we, there's we, one other thing I want to talk about about the stylized violence. Sure. This is this gets back to Asian culture. A lot of Americans take a film like um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or um, The uh, Curse of the Golden Flower or something, something like that. Something like that, yeah. Um, and, and Hero, movies like that. And they, they think that all of this wire work is silly. People flying around and sword fighting in the air and, and this kind of thing. But in, in, in Chinese culture, where you have lots of kung fu movies and, and this sort of thing, what they're getting at is that the person who practices kung fu lives in two worlds. 
there's a spiritual side to martial arts, and in Japan as well, where that person fights in the physical world, but they also fight in the spiritual world. So a director, even as, as somebody as savvy as, as Ang Lee, when he makes uh, Crouching Tiger, he's trying to give you a visual of that's, that's kind of a marriage of both. So I think that this film is trying to do that as well. I mean, some of the over-the-top violence that we're getting is a juxtaposition of reality and, and the spiritual ghost world that's um, creeping into that reality. And that's all I got to say about that, awesome. as my good friend Forrest Gump would say. <laughs> well, that's about, that's about all I'd have to say about that as well. Before we wrap up, uh, any favorite moments, favorite scenes? Uh... Well, Kung Fu is, is my, my girl du jour. I, uh... <laughs> she is clearly the most awesome character yeah, she's she's not uh, she's not gorgeous, but <laughs> she's <laughs> but she's, uh, uh, yes. But she's uh, but she's manlier than gorgeous. She's awesome. Though. She's manlier than fighter pilots, apparently. I really like the scene with the piano. Being a pianist myself, I like the idea that a piano would eat someone. And it is intimidating. It is an a little bit. Yeah, it outweighs um, it outweighs most people. And the way that they do times. that scene is actually rather rather inventive. Like the piano eats her through the keyboard, and like. She goes through the esophagus, quote unquote, I guess, of the piano into. It's a grand piano, so she goes. Her body ends up where all the wires are, which is where the stomach of the piano would be. Mm-hmm. And she's getting torn up by the wires, and like there's this ocean of blood in inside there. But it's like really cheap, animated, bright red, candy colored blood, and like the the lid of the piano slams down on her, and her leg goes flying off. It's just so bizarre and wacky. I love it. I love the bit with the flying head. Basically, I love all the deaths. The deaths are the highlight of the movie for me. I really liked the little train journey just because I think that the imagery of the cartoon train is really trippy. The music is... After a while, I... For, for the first, like, half or so of the movie, I thought that them reusing that melody over and over again bordered on obnoxious. But after a while, I started to really kind of groove on the fact that they had a really singular musical identity that they were just going with for the movie. Um, and they also had these weird pop songs in there in English. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why they why they chose that. Um, I have no idea why they would include those. I mean, those were kind of distracting, actually, for me. But I, you know, talking about favorite things, I love the costume design, especially when when Gorgeous is found in the wedding garb, because that's such a beautiful Shinto gown. It's almost and, and by having the kind of the headdress that's over the elaborate hairstyle it becomes a funeral shroud oh yeah that's cool i I never thought of that there's uh, something kind of ghostly about it she's wearing white which as far as i know isn't isn't really a traditional wedding outfit i mean when japanese people get married nowadays they'll wear a traditional kimono and and the man has i don't know what it's like a gi or something some kind of a an outfit that he's wearing and then they will go a different day and they will be married in traditional Western garb, like a wedding dress and tuxedo, mm-hmm. um, so that they can have both. But the, uh, I mean, most families seem to do that nowadays. But yeah, white is is, is a color of death. I mean, that's, so that's a, that's one reason that like you don't give people white flowers as a gift. You have to be careful about you know serving food and, and doing things that's that's um, you know, giving things that are white. So yeah. Yeah. Let's see. There was something else that I was thinking of, but I can't remember. Oh, right. Um, that little backdrop of the backdrop. They said you know, like when the bus pulled away, they had that. Um, they there was a quick flash of subtitles when they're walking by the sign, and the sign says, uh, "Go back to the city" or something, and then it says, "Get married" underneath it. Like it's just the briefest of 
of little hints that something about them being unmarried is going to come into play later in the movie. Okay. I didn't notice that. It's really awkwardly subtitled in the trailer. Like, they make a big deal about it in the trailer. House is calling, go back to the city, come back and marry me. And you're like, why does it say that? It's just a bad translation. But anyway, so yeah, I liked all the deaths. I liked the overall style. Really, the only thing I didn't like is that I wasn't blazed while I was watching it, honestly. <laughs> uh, that's really the only thing that would have made this movie even more of a trip than it already was. And, uh, and probably the, the reason why, we're recording this at, uh, in my uh, library, and uh, <laughs> if we uh, just had one single spark get out of, out of hand, we would uh, probably die in a massive conflagration because of all the books and the, oh yeah, the other yeah. there are a lot of books in this apartment flammable substances yeah but uh, anyway that's uh that's house from 1977 directed by nobuhiko obayashi uh, i highly recommend everybody to uh, go out and see it find it somehow uh, if, if you like strange cult movies you'll, you'll get a kick out of this one but yeah cinemantics is back awesome times uh, i'm nick melton I am G. Warlock Vance. See you next time, everybody.